0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 563, and the quote of the day is, Thinking is good. Overthinking can end things before they ever get the chance to develop. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 563, and I hope you're hanging in there. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're safe. I hope you're happy. I hope you are taking some time to shed and learn something and all of those things. We have some time on our hands, so you should be using it wisely. I think you're in taking a step in the right direction here uh, listening to this podcast, but that's just my opinion. Anyway, taking a step in the right direction. Speaking of that, if you want to take a step in the right direction to save yourself some money and to get yourself some great symbols, I recommend checking out dreamsymbols.com. I've been dealing with them for a very long time. They make amazing sounding symbols, they're amazing people as well. And they make great sounding symbols that don't break the bank. And they are priced well below the competition and they sound fantastic. <laughs> That's, they sound great. Check them out. Go to dreamsymbols.com, save yourself some bread, get yourself some amazing symbols that sound great. Dreamsymbols.com. Now let's get into this conversation with Chris Parker. If you're not familiar with Chris Parker and his playing and his work, you are about to be amazed. He has a resume that, that lists the who's who of all styles of music. He was in the original Becker Brothers, played with Bob Dylan, Cher, Natalie Cole, Donald Fagan, Ashford and Simpson, Aretha Franklin, Freddie Hubbard, James Brown, salt and Pepper Stuff, Miles Davis, Patti LaBelle, Michael Bolton, Michael Franks, Lionel Hampton. The list goes on and on. I'm looking right now at his biography, and I could just keep reading names. Chris has definitely carved out an amazing career for himself that has lasted decades, and he shares a ton of information, not only about about approaches and the difference between playing live and playing in the studio and getting inspiration outside of drumming through his artwork and there's just a lot of timeless info in here and i'm stoked to finally get him on the podcast so i'm not going to waste any more time let's get into it with chris parker chris parker how are you sir I'm good, Nick. Nice to see you. It is. It's nice to see you as well. It's uh techno- I love technology because <laughs> although I do a lot of these, I do a lot of these uh, remotely as it is because people are all over the world. But uh, it's nice to be able to just, it's nice to be able to see people instead of back in the day when people were doing interviews over the phone. And, and I, I remember listening to interviews, you know, that were done over the phone. And I was like, Oh, I was always wondering, like, you know, how it's really hard to interview someone when you can't see their face and you can't tell, you know, what's going on and, and all that. So, uh, but nice to see you for sure. Um, so there, there's a lot of things that I want to touch on because you've had such a far ranging career that is, that is sort of not only span decades, but also span genres and, and styles and things like that. And the interesting thing, um you starting at such a young age. Like I read I read that you started playing drums at three. Was that was that something that was your was your family, you know, were your family musicians, or did you just kinda find a pair of drumsticks somewhere and start playing?
1: Well, uh my dad, who's still playing, uh played soprano sax and clarinet in the army band. And when he got out, he swapped his soprano sax and his clarinet. For a set of drums. And it was an old, uh, like Ludwig Pioneer model, 26 inch bass drum and a, a Black Beauty snare, which I wish I still had, and a Chinese cymbal and a hi hat. And I just gravitated towards them. I wanted to hit them and play along with Lionel Hampton and Benny Goodman and Count Basie Records, uh, something I always did. And he has reel to reel. Recordings of me uh, at that age, 18 months or two years old, playing along with uh, Lionel Hampton's Flying Home or Gin Gin for Christmas or um, Count Basie's One O'Clock Jump or Woody Herman, uh, Big Band, you know, Four Brothers or. These are song titles and tunes that I remember you know, from an early age. Right. Plus, he, he, he played a lot of bebop. There was a lot of Monk and Miles and Max Roach and Clifford Brown records going all the time. He had a lot of 78s and then bought LPs, but uh, the drums were in the apartment, and I couldn't stay away from them. You know, uh, mm-hmm. God, God bless my mother <laughs> <laughs> for, for taking it. But, um, no, Again,
0: God I, bless all of our, our brothers, right? I mean, our our parents have, have put up with all of us banging on the drums exactly. for, for years and years, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a lot to ask. I mean, even if I'm practicing and I hear another drummer, it's very distracting as much as I love it. I don't want to hear somebody else practice. Um, uh, and that's the way I, I grew up. Four younger brothers also play drums. So, oh, wow. Uh, by the time I was uh, 14 or 15 there was probably five sets in the house uh different levels and different kind of music going on it was
0: cacophonous That is uh, I I can only imagine. My brother and I played drums but uh but oh, he, okay. he's older than me so he was he got out he was out of the house earlier than than uh So it wasn't there wasn't a lot of two drum sets in the house for very long. Yep. But but I can I can only imagine what what you have four younger brothers you said? Yep. So five drummers in the house yeah, and your dad plus,
1: and my dad, my mom <laughs> played piano. Nice. So, uh, but I know a lot of families, Jerry and Rick Murata, mm-hmm. you know, both played drums and Steve, Steve and Eddie Gad uh, had a tap dance routine as well as playing drums or mm-hmm. a, actually Eddie played trumpet, I think. But, um, uh, a lot of brothers, the Wackerman brothers. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And their dad lot, too. And their dad. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Picaro family today is Joe Picaro's birthday. You know, Jeff and Steve mm-hmm. and Mike—all musical. You know, a lot of musical families out there, which is a great way to grow up. Yeah. Really great.
0: What's your take on that? Do you think that that musicians have something in them because you notice, you know, a family that has that musicians—they have children and then they become musicians. Do you think it's it's just what they grew up with, so they feel comfortable with it, or do you think that there's some sort of internal? whether it be rhythm or internal draw to music?
1: Well, there's definitely a draw to music, you know, as a universal language. But I think growing up with other people in the family playing made it um, an uh, accepted routine, you know, to go and play music or go and listen to music was something that you could do uh, besides going outside and and kicking a ball around. Mm-hmm. So... And it was encouraged. it was always encouraged. you know there's no parent alive who doesn't smile when they see their kid playing an instrument, you know right. look at the, look at them go
0: yeah and and now they're understanding that it that it helps with school and and cognitive uh you know cognitive uh what's the word growth and 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 you know making children think better and can problem solve better and they get better grades and they can pay attention more absolutely or that's, that's just, just our excuse that you know to say that we that why, that's why we should play drums
1: <laughs> no 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 it's sci- scientifically proven you know that music and math are very connected and listening to music while you're studying is a more conducive way to learn things mm-hmm. it's a sh- it's a shame that the arts in the schools are are not as prevalent as they were when i was growing up you had to take an instrument you had to take art class you had to take music class as well as shop and Home economics, you know, it was uh, a lot of stuff that they taught in school that was very valuable. Geography, <laughs> right. you know, that's not taught anymore. It's a shame.
0: Geography is not taught anymore?
1: Geography is not taught anymore. There were, used to be a course you had to take, geography. Oh, know. I
0: mean, I took geography, yeah. Yeah, yeah. me too. So...
1: There's I probably of- need
0: to brush up on geography. I'm very – I lived in Northern California and I used to tell people that I lived west of San Francisco. So I'm very, <laughs> very bad at directions and orientation. <laughs> and New York City always messed me up because when I would come from Hoboken, so the river was on one side and then I would then I would cross over thinking that the river was still on the same side. But now it's on the opposite side. Oh, man, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. Thank
1: God for, thank God for GPS. <laughs>
0: Exactly. I'd be
1: lost. Now, New York is one of the easiest cities in the world because it's laid out on a grid, north and south avenues and east and west streets. It makes it really easy to find your way around if you yeah. haven't been, unless you get in the village or Lower East Side, and yeah. it gets a little confusing. But
0: Yeah, for sure. For me, I'm just, just that's why I play drums. Um, <laughs> so c- coming up in a musical family, I, I remember... So I grew up in a music, in sort of a pseudo musical family. Uh no one was like a professional musician by any means. Uh but so I I feel that that there was draw to it. My mom played piano, so there was you know, there was always music in the house. My parents love music and things like that. Um but there was a my my family's also in the restaurant business and there was a guy that used to come in the bar all the time and his father was a really accomplished sax player. And always told him, "Listen, you you don't play music to make money you don't play music as a career you do that on the side you go out and get a job at the factory or wherever it is and you play music on the side what was the what was the tone in your home was it you can do this as a career or was it this should just be part of who you are as a person and you should go out and get a job uh
1: the tone was whatever it whatever i can do to help support the family is is a plus mm-hmm. and my father was a is a, a painter by profession, and when I was growing up 50s, um, he was really not established yet. So he did a lot of different jobs from postman to garbage man to uh, teaching, uh, teaching deaf school. He taught art to deaf students in Pleasantville, New York.
2: Hmm.
1: That, was, that was probably the steadiest job, and he played too, but he wasn't making money as a musician. He made money teaching art, So by the time I was 10 or 11, it was great for me to go and back up strippers and bring home 100 bucks or 200 bucks for the weekend to contribute to the family family pool, you know, help pay for food and uh, a lot of mouths to feed. So it it was appreciated that I could contribute on any level. You know, and they were happy to drive me to the gig because I came home with a with some cash. It was great. Yeah. It was encouraged as a, as a livelihood as well as, um, you know, something that was fun to do and that everybody enjoyed doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My father had bands, uh, swing bands and Dixieland bands that rehearsed at the house. So it was a uh, regular activity and those guys, you know, played gigs. Um, it was all good, you know, to, to, uh, to help with supplement the income.
0: Sure. I, I, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. It seems like, I was—I mean, I wasn't around in the 50s and 60s, obviously, but it seems like there was less talk of what are you going to do with this? Are you going to make a career out of this? Are you, or are you going to go and do something else? And it was more just sort of this thing that you did. And now it's like we've created this defining line where we say, you're either going to go out and be a professional musician and just do that or you have to go get a job and play on the side and and it seems like society pushes is trying to like push us into this box to figure out what we're going to do do you do you see that more now than you did then
1: i see it more now but but because uh, the music is um, the music business and there's so many different aspects to it in the 50s and 60s there weren't DJs there weren't um there was radio and and jukeboxes and stuff like that but the proliferation of all the different types of music wasn't so prevalent I mean there was country and blues and and rock and swing and there were different types of music but now it's so diversified uh that you really have to be accomplished as a as a programmer and somebody who understand who can do pro tools and somebody who specializes in a, in a certain genre actually to make a living at it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I wanted to touch on one thing that you had mentioned about the arts and how there's, there's less arts in the school systems. And I had uh Leroy Clouden on last week or two weeks ago.
1: Oh, great. I haven't seen him in a while.
0: No. And, and he was taught, he was like, I'm a product of the, of the system, you know, like I, I, and i mean that in a good way like he was like i took advantage of every after school course i took advantage of every free music class i took advantage of all these things all of these programs which are are seeming to go away and to me there seems you know like art music whatever photography art music put it all together is starting to be devalued which is which is sad i mean by societal standards it's being devalued but now we get into a crazy time where people can't go out and people can't see their friends and things like that what's the first thing they turn to art right right Right. yeah um do you do you have an opinion on that do you have a, a maybe a reasoning why you think it's starting to happen is it just because the market is flooded there's so much of it or what do you think it is
1: well, Leroy, and I think if I'm correct, uh, Leroy and Steve Jordan and Omar Hakim, uh, a lot of guys went to this school that's a block away from me, the High School of Music and Arts, mm-hmm. uh, Fiorello LaGuardia High School, which is probably the, the best of the best high schools that you could go to. You know, it was like uh, leading to Juilliard or leading to uh, going to college for music. So he definitely had the best uh, Advantage—the best high school you could go to for music. I had a great high school music teacher um, who also encouraged all kinds of things, and and everybody played in different groups, different styles. But now that it's they focus more on uh, STEM, you know, science and technology and electronics. I mean, it's good for the time, so that everybody can uh, be good, comfortable on their computer. And with the with the shutdown the way it is right now, it's an outlet. It's it's great to tune in to hear your friends uh, playing music together in in four different locations. But it's it, that's really brand new. I think this is going to be the wave of the future. And same thing with art. You know, to be able to show art on the computer is uh, much easier than. I still prefer going to a museum. I can't wait mm-hmm. for the museums to open up again. But this is a new frontier, really, you know. And uh, because of the virus, we're forced to adapt. And I think that's positive, ultimately. You know, mm-hmm. the same way, same way when drum machines and Pro Tools and electronics came in. You know, it was whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a minute. What what's happening here? But eventually. Uh, 25 years later, 30 years later, you know, that's, that's the norm is Mm -hmm. to have, to have unlimited tracks and be able to record things in remote locations and to perfect it, uh, edit over and over and over again, you know, to get this perfect recording. And, um, that is normal now, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and for a long time I came up, uh, First, recordings I did were eight track and then 16 track and then 24 track. Uh, but I saw the whole wave happening uh, as more and more technology got incorporated into recording.
0: And I would venture to guess that all of the people who were sort of fighting all of that technology, you know, if you put them in a room now and say, oh, we got to make some edits, uh, do you want to cut the tape? And, and do, you know, it's like, do you want to splice it and do all that kind of stuff? It's like, yeah. no, I don't want to do that. I just want to, do, I just I know. Want to delete it and do it again on Pro ProTool.
1: Yeah. No, that was an art splicing tape. Guys yeah. who could splice on 24 track tape. It was amazing with a razor blade.
0: That, I mean, I think that's something to be, to be talked about. There's probably people listening, listening who don't have experience with reel to reel or never recorded on it or, but if you needed to, if you needed to, cut a part out or put a new part in you had to literally like cut that that's why they say like to cut the tape you know you gotta cut it and put a new piece of of reel-to-reel tape in there and and then punch in on it too
1: yeah exactly (sighs) it's crazy amazing
0: yep i came right at the end of it i've recorded i think two two or three records on reel-to-reel uh and then but after that you know then everything went to digital
1: 24 track
0: yeah Yep. Yeah, 24 track reel to reel. Yep.
1: Yep. Those are great machines. The Studer 24 track.
0: Yep. Yep. I mean they the sound you can't you can't get I don't think me I don't think you can get close to it on digital.
1: No, 30 IPS, 30 inches per second on a 24 track is great, but if you you were able to record drums at 15 IPS and you couldn't get fatter sounds than that with the bass and the drums if you recorded, you know, at half speed, and then brought it back up to regular speed for the other instruments. That was a great way to get uh, really funky drum sounds.
0: Hmm. I, that's, it's a little over my head. I'm not a, I'm not a huge uh, gear and, and technical guy. Uh, but uh, I, I was thinking, you know, when you record on, if you record on digital, or I'm sorry, if you record on reel-to-reel or analog, do you think that you lose it all when you transfer it to digital for mixing and all that? you
1: you lo- you definitely lose a certain amount you lose some top end and some mid some mid range uh the low can be the low end can be boosted electronically um but yeah you definitely lose something you know the difference between a vinyl record and a cd the same exact music you can hear it you know the vinyl mm-hmm. has got more air in it there's more air around the instruments yeah it's uh It's not a one or a zero, you know, it's got a, it's got a whole life to itself. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Yeah. There is, um, are you familiar with title, the, uh, the music streaming service? No. So title, it's basically like Spotify and anything else. Uh, it's owned by Jay Z actually. And he, there's title and then there's title high def and it's all of the, it's still, obviously it's still in digital form, but it's all of the, um, it's all of the records that are, or it's like records that are uncompressed. So, okay. and you can listen, and you can only listen to it on. You can't listen to it on your phone, but you can listen to it on, on your laptop. And if you have a great sound system, so there's a record, uh, August and everything after by the Counting Crows. Great record. It's one of my favorite records. And my brother, I went to his house and he said, "Hey, you should listen, let let's put this record on with this uncompressed version. It Sounds like a totally different record." I bet. You know, I everything, bet. the snare sounds different, the guitar sounds different, the vocals yeah. sound different. Every, you know, you can hear more. And like you said, there's there's more air to it. And, yeah. and, and that's, you know, I think that's how music is supposed to be experienced.
1: Yeah. The only uh, plus for the digital age is when they remaster 78s or LPs from the 40s and 50s or 50s and 60s, rather, for LPs, when they remaster those, you know, that were originally mono records and they uh, remaster them to make them stereo then you can hear stuff that you never heard before yeah. the stuff that I, I mean i was just listening to um i have some uh lead belly folkways recordings that were 78s mm-hmm. and they remastered them at some point and you can hear you know his fingers on the guitar string and all his vocal wow. inflection stuff—it was really illuminating. It was great.
0: So, so, what are they remastering them from the from the masters? They're getting they're getting their hands on the tape on the masters, the master De- recordings. It, it depends
1: if they have the uh, seventy eights. I'm not sure how they do that. You know, if yeah. they have a uh, but put it in a digital format and then try to enhance it. You know, mm-hmm. I know with. With LPs, they remaster, if they have the original tapes, you know, they have to, I did this with a, a stuff record I produced, it was like the best of stuff, and I went to New Jersey to the warehouse and got the tapes, and we baked them, so to, to get the magnetic information more solid on the tapes before mm-hmm. remastering it. And we were able to to improve the piano sound and improve the drum sounds, uh, and that, those were 24-track masters you know but yeah just getting them up to the digital preference uh digital level was it was exciting because things you heard things that you hadn't heard before
0: yeah we were just talking about Leroy Cloud and uh and before his interview I had Greg Arrico on the show and oh, wow. he mentioned baking uh tapes i'd never heard of it i'd never never knew what it was and i said wait a minute you actually bake them you put them? Yep. He's like yeah they get baked and then he brought it up leroy brought it up and now you've brought it up and, I, and i've done almost 600 interviews never heard that before i've worked in the music industry for years never heard of that ever and it's been brought up three times in the last couple of weeks
1: that's the only way you can get the magnetic material to stick stick to the to the tape so and then what does it do it uh,
0: pass- so does it heat it up just to adhere it more yeah Exactly huh. huh it's really uh, blew, blown away blown away yep. <laughs> um, so i let's switch gears a little bit. We're talking right. um, we were talking a little bit about uh, about you with your career and how you know whether you were going to do it full time or 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 you know how you were going to sort of navigate that world. Um, I imagine growing up in New York City, you're in the hotbed of of Everything that 's going on um, you know you're i'm guessing you're playing jazz and 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 everything else um, what would you say what would you say was like your big break, and what do you think led to that big break or was it a a, a bunch of tiny little small breaks in, on the way there
1: there was there was two uh two big breaks kind of one was uh I had gone to art school in New York city and uh, the School of Visual Arts in 1968. And I would play gigs on the weekend with uh, various bands that were like casuals or club dates and stuff like that. And that's how I paid my way, paid my rent, my apartment. And I had a tuition to art school, but I paid my rent and groceries and stuff doing these gigs.
0: What, what exactly, sorry to cut you off, what exactly would you consider a casual?
1: Well, a put together band that plays for a, a party or for cocktails or—is uh,
0: that different than a wedding band, though?
1: A little different. I mean, yeah. the, the wedding—you've got a sort of a set function. You know, the, here's the bride and the groom, and you play music before. You play the wedding march, and you and you play for dancing after. Casual is, you know, it could be a fireman's party or a party at the VFW lounge or at right. the Elks lounge. Sure. I did a lot of those. Got you. Anyway, I was doing going to art school, living in the city, and doing those kind of gigs on the weekend. And I answered an ad in Rolling Stone for a drummer wanted in Woodstock, and uh, called up the guy. And he said, "Yeah, come on up." And I went up there and auditioned, and I got the gig. And that was the first. Uh, band that i was in that actually made a record hmm. the band, band was called holy moses and they reissued that record a couple of years ago so you can you can find it on CD on cds uh rca in 19 came out in 1970 wow so that band was happening and i was living in woodstock and i was playing with a lot of other other bands just to make their rent and uh i kept seeing this guy with a beard and a fur hat who would come into the gigs and kind of stand in the back and he was just like a eccentric character i would see it all my gigs it turned out to be paul butterfield wow and after i don't know a couple of months i got this call and he said it's paul paul butterfield and i just hung up i thought it was <laughs> a joke <laughs> but he he called right back and he said no really it's paul butterfield i want to know if you want to do some playing and I said, sure. So we got together, and that was a band that he put together after his uh, horn band, Resurrection of Pig Boy Crabshaw, on those albums. This was the next band after that. And it was called Better Days, and it was Paul Butterfield and Billy Rich on bass, and Ronnie Barron, great pianist from New Orleans, Jeff Mulder on guitar, and Amos Garrett on guitar. Uh so it was a really fun band to play with. And we made a couple of records and I was living in Woodstock and going into the city to catch guys I liked hearing mm-hmm. uh live like I would go in and see Elvin Jones or I'd go in and see Tony Williams or I'd go to uh, Buddy Rich's club on 62nd and 2nd uh making these trips into the city and I started to do a little recording uh jingles and stuff because people knew me from the Butterfield Records. And this is the second break, was uh doing a jingle with Gordon Edwards on bass. And he said, You sound good, stuffy, come up to my club after. <laughs> so <laughs> I went up to his club that night on 97th and Columbus called called McKell's. And uh there was nobody on stage and just hanging out there and checking out the scene. And the band got back on stage, and Gordon gave me a signal, come on up, Stuffy. (laughs) And I went up and played, and it was Cornell Dupree on guitar and Richard T. on piano and Gordon on bass. And um, I sat in for a tune and said thank you very much and got up to leave. And he said, ah, hold on, Stuffy, don't go anywhere. (laughs) So I said, oh, thank you. So I played another tune and said thank you and goodbye to everybody. And they said, oh, wait a minute. Don't go anywhere. So that kept happening. And I ended up playing the whole night until 2 or 3 in the morning. And at the end of the night, he said, what are you doing tomorrow night? <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was the beginning of the band at that time was called the Encyclopedias of Soul. And it was Gordon, Cornell, and Richard. And they mm-hmm. had a tenor player. Charlie Brown, and they had a singer, Esther Marrow, who would come up and do a short set. But I kept coming back uh, night after night to play with those guys. And that was uh, the beginning of Stuff. Mm -hmm. Why was he calling you Stuffy? That's what they called everybody. Really? Yeah. i never heard that term. Yeah. (laughs) Richard Richard called me Stuffy. Gordon called me Stuffy. You know, it's instead of – a guy or a right. buddy, hey, stuffy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't realize. Uh, I did. So when Steve, with Steve uh, playing in stuff, uh, I mean, I guess that was after you.
1: Well, it's concurrently, the same time, I I Got was it. in, uh, I was playing with them, and I also was playing with the uh, what became the Brecker Brothers, me and Will Lee and Don Grolnick and mm-hmm. Steve Kahn. And Mike and Randy and Sanborn used to rehearse at Don Gronnick's apartment. We all lived in the same building. Uh, Will on the first floor and Don on the fourth floor and me on the third floor. Um, And they got to the point they made a record and wanted to go out on the road to promote it. So I wanted to do that. And we needed a needed a sub for my gig with Gordon and Richard and Cornell. And I ran into Steve at the Village Vanguard playing with Joe Farrell. And we started talking and asked him if he'd be interested in doing this. And he said, sure. So while I was on the road with the Brecker Brothers, Steve did it. And of course, Gordon and Richard and Cornell fell in love with Steve. And when I came back, Gordon said, I want you both. Huh. And that's, that's how it ended up being two drummers in the band. By that time, Eric Gale. Uh, had come by playing guitar. Yeah, he's so a,
0: it was, man, he's a great guitar player.
1: Yeah, he's a great bass player, too. He's on a lot of records playing bass, hmm. including, uh, like, Brown-Eyed Girl, mm-hmm. Van Morrison, that's Eric playing bass. I didn't know that. Yeah, with Al Gorgoni on guitar and Hugh McCracken on guitar and Van Morrison, that was the band.
2: Hmm. I did he's not got know a, that.
1: Yeah, he's got a little solo on there, you know, in the middle of Brown-Eyed Girl, a little bass breakdown, yeah. boom, 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 boom. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, he was on a lot of records playing bass. Yeah, yeah.
0: Do you do you feel like that? It was sort of a, like an inner circle that you were in because I mean, you guys were all sort of working on a bunch of different things, and and was it kind of like, hey, you can't make? Okay, let me call. Let me call you. Okay, Steve can't make. Let me call Chris. Let me do. You know, was it a lot of that? And and sort of like once you got in, you realize because even now I feel like there's a lot of guys who do the bulk of the work. You know, it's sort of like the eighty twenty rule. Like, where, do you feel like you were, that was in, that was what you had in New York?
1: Well, I uh, inadvertently entered it. Yeah, I mean, because mm-hmm. I knew I knew who Richard T. and Cornell Dupree and Gordon were from records that I had bought, where they were the rhythm section backing up Aretha or backing up uh, Lou Rawls or whoever it was. You know, I always looked at the credits. And that's uh, the same guys. I love these guys: King mm-hmm. Curtis's band, Aretha's band. So when I started playing with them, I I didn't mean to break into the circle, but I did because they heard people heard me playing with them and said I fit in. So let me call them for this record, whether it was a Gladys Knight record or. Um, that's how I met Ashford and Simpson and a lot of different people. James Brown, I did get up off of that thing. Uh, a lot of people found out about me because I played at this club every night. And that was a club, McKell's, run by Pat and Mike McKell, where guys would, who were in town would come up to hang out and check it out. I met a lot of guys from the Earth, Wind & Fire guys to George Benson to Fred Wesley. A lot of different people came by after their gigs to mm-hmm. come and sit in at McKell's.
2: Huh.
0: So, so, yeah,
1: it was definitely a circle.
0: Yeah. If you're looking for a top-of-the-line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations, and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab Series, go to mapexdrums.com. One line in the Dream Cymbal family that I think is really cool is the Dark Matter family. They have the flat earth, the moon ride, and the Dark Matter energy. And although they're all made a little bit differently, they all involve the Dark Matter process. And this is really cool. Check this out. They take a cymbal that is already finished and then put it back in the oven, hand hammer it, and then shock it with cold water and then put it back in the oven. And what happens is the ash and the soot from the oven are fused to the top layer of the metal, which give it this really, really unique sound. And you know what? I'm going to let you hear exactly what this process does to a symbol. Check them out. <laughs> to learn more about Dream Symbols, their Dark Matter line, and all their great products, be sure to check out DreamSymbols.com. And did the arc of your career start to go up? Like, was it a systematic thing that you were thinking, like, how can I get to different gigs? Or and the reason why I'm asking because I think that what you've done wonderfully is you took sort of one one big gig and and transmitted it into or, or transformed it into like many big gigs and playing with many big artists and things like that. And I a lot of times I see a person that's like. Oh, yeah, I played with so-and-so artists, and, but I haven't done anything in 20 years, you know? And I think that you've done a great job at leveraging the opportunities that you, that you had into more opportunities. And I think that's a valuable lesson for anyone listening.
1: Yeah, I wish I could say I, I worked it all out like that, but it was really unconscious. Uh, I played the best I could play. Whoever I played with, I always tried to make it the best. I could do and tried to play for the song. And that led to somebody else hearing me and saying, I love what you did with this person. I'd like to use you on my record. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was really organic the way it happened. Um, And I don't I don't know if I had organized it that way. You know, I'm going to leverage this into that, that it would have worked as well. Yeah. Because people really, especially with musicians, they really want to make their own decisions, you know, and and you can't tell a producer, uh, even if you had a hit with that producer the last time out, that he shouldn't go with somebody else. You know, the they like to choose the jockey and choose the horse to make uh, even a better hit or a bigger hit. You know, that was always the. um, So I really had very little to do with it except for except for a conscious effort to play the best I could every time I played, mm-hmm. you know, what, whatever the situation was, whatever type of music it was. So um, that was just my personal values, and one thing lent, led to another, you know. Mm-hmm. It was really uh, word of mouth.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned playing as best as you could. I was going to ask, what do you think are the reasons why people kept hiring you? Because I, I I'm guessing... It's well I'll let you go. Uh, I'll let you talk to you. I don't I don't need to put my uh, my my opinion in here. No, I'd like to hear your opinion. <laughs> well, I'm guessing it's not because you can, you know, you can play 300 beats a minute uh with your feet or something, you know. The misconceptions that we like I think that everyone thinks we have to have these blazing ungodly chops that and uh, and if we don't then no one's going to hire us.
1: You you make more money playing less notes
0: done interview over okay we're, that's chris it was great talking to you, <laughs> you
1: know, reading uh, being able to read have blazing reading chops is is definitely very important you know mm-hmm. the fact that somebody doesn't have a drum chart they have a lead sheet and you can say okay just give me the lead sheet and read the piano line or read the, what the left hand is doing with the piano or read the melody read the lyrics you know a typical lead sheet has got the chords the piano part and the lyrics on it and mm-hmm. if you take that information and turn it into a drum part uh you're valuable
0: mhm so you it was your reading ability i mean obviously you're you're very likable so i think that go, <laughs> you know that goes a long way too right
1: well this diplomacy is definitely involved yeah it uh, a definite uh, mindset going into the studio to work with somebody, you know, you want to be totally open to their ideas and to their conception, what it is that they think they want, uh, the song to do, you know, mm-hmm. what, what are their lyrics saying and how they want to interpret those lyrics. You got to support all that with your, with your playing, you know, and the, I can't emphasize that enough. You know, it's really about the song and each each song is different, you know. I never, mm-hmm. I never played the same way twice for for any artist, even from song to song. You know, listening to what the song is about, uh, even if it's instrumental, if there mm-hmm. are no lyrics. You know, what what to do to support and drive that song, uh, or put that song in a in a cushioned uh, environment. You know, mm-hmm. so it so it speaks the best it can speak harmonically and rhythmically and lyrically.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You mentioned mindset going into the studio. Is your mindset different going into the studio than it is going on the bandstand and playing live?
1: Yeah. Uh, Studio, you know, you're dealing with usually headphones and other musicians who are, Go boed away, you know. So you, it's an artificial environment. The Mm -hmm. playing, um, playing on the bandstand is the real thing. Um, that's what makes it so different right now. You're playing in a in one box of a Zoom meeting, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But playing on the bandstand is we're we're here to entertain. You know, we're there's an audience, and we're here to entertain and make music that grooves people and. And uh, takes people from their one mood and puts them in a better mood, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so it's two different things, really. You know, at, at the best of recording, you go into the recording studio and and try to get that kind of a groove going, you know, where the people in the control room are, are grooving and uh, can hear the energy that's happening and the synthesis that's happening between all the different musicians and how everybody is reacting to each other. Uh, and can hear that energy coming off the tape or coming off the Pro Tools rig, however you're recording.
0: Right. Is your approach different to your playing, do you think? For recording? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Versus live?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah? Uh, yeah, because the sounds are much more under a microscope, you know, whether I'm playing brushes or rods or sticks, the the volume is usually much less because the microphones can do the work that needs to emphasize things. You know, everything is miked, not in the old days. It was an overhead mic and a mic on the bass drum and a mic on the snare drum. That was pretty much it. But uh, these days, there's a mic or two mics on everything, you know, top and bottom of the snare drum, top and bottom of the tom-tom, front and back of the bass drum. Right. So... If you, you don't blink to- too
0: loud, you're gonna mess up the take.
1: That's right. Stop <laughs> that blinking.
0: <laughs> there's there's always a lot of talk of of playing for the song and playing, making musical choices and and phrasing and and all of these sort of nebulous concepts that are that are really hard to teach out of a book. How how did you develop that sort of that sort of playing? And also how do you recommend that others do it?
1: Well, uh, early on, I was listening to records, all different kinds of stuff, from uh, Kurt Vial to Leadbelly to Count Basie to Stravinsky. Uh, uh, I was listening to a lot of different types of music, orchestral music, and playing a lot of different types of music in the bands and in orchestra and singing in the chorus. Uh, I played in the brass choir. I played in the the, uh, dan- the jazz band. And I-, and I played in the symphony and in, I was playing trumpet, uh, not drums, but in each, each case, you know, I always took note of the style of music we were playing and, um, try to emulate that style in, in my playing. If I was playing a classical piece, uh, on trumpet, Tannhauser or, um, Uh, or we did Rhapsody in blue, you know, the trumpet parts were, were demanding and you had to really emulate that style to make it sound right, you Mm -hmm. know? So I adapted that kind of thinking to drumming, you know, whatever kind of music I was playing. Um, like the first band I mentioned that I was in, in Woodstock, you know, they came out of a two guitars, bass, piano, and vocals, and they were the band was really big at the time in Woodstock, especially, you know. So, mm-hmm. everybody wanted to do something that sounded like the band. So, I really emulated Levon Helm and uh, kind of a simple, uh, earthier approach to the drums. You know, I wasn't, although I had played a lot of jazz already at that point, and I had played rock and I'd played Latin stuff, I really wanted to emulate his style to make the band work. Uh, and it did work. Same thing with with Stuff. Um, before it was Stuff. I mean, the the first tune that we played when I sat in that night was Rainy Night in Georgia, you know, a Brooke Benton mm-hmm. record. And I emulated the drummer on that record, you know, which is a simple approach and kind of works with a song. Uh, the other things we played that night were Stevie Wonder tunes or Earth, Wind & Fire tunes or... Uh, Love the One You're With, you know, Stephen Stills. Um, so in each case, I was thinking of the record that I knew that I was familiar with and, and how that sounded and how to fit in, how to fit into the style they were playing. Mm-hmm. If it was an R&B style, I tried to emulate R&B drummers that I was familiar with. If it was rock, I tried to emulate rock drummers that I was familiar with. Uh... Same thing with country or folk or bluegrass or uh any any style that i that I heard where I wanted to fit in, I had kind of a musicology musicological reference in my head from a record that I've heard, even if it was uh, uh country blues you know I mm-hmm. re- remember the lead Belly records and John Lee Hooker records that I had listened to, so that's always been my my take on it. You know, yeah. to try to try to fit in this to the style that we're playing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's and having these conversations because I, I always love this question because I think it's it's easy to to find a book and say okay, here's how you play this pattern or or uh-huh. whatever it is. And the way that you just describe that really for me sort of distills it down to. Okay, you have to have a a large repertoire of of music that you're listening to and listening to intently and hearing how they're touching the drums, hearing what their cymbals sound like, hearing what, you know, what textures, what what phrasing, all that sort of stuff. So like you said, so you have a reference point. So when someone said they get behind the kit, you get behind the kit and they're like, no, I want it more, you know, I want it to like a little bit more, you know, I want it to feel more like James Brown than than." Stevie Wonder or something, and you can maybe understand what that, what that means. Yep. You know, I never, I, I don't know. It just kind of hit me like that of thinking, thinking you having reference points.
1: Those are two very different styles right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, although a lot of people would lump them together as R&B, uh, Stevie is a great drummer, in his own right, and a lot of the records where the drums are the most happening are where he's playing drums, you mm-hmm. know, and super Superstition and uh, the first album, Music of My Mind. He's playing all the drums. There's so many great things that he does on drums because he's just enjoying it. You know, he has this desire to play and it, he's not thinking about technique or uh, anything. He's playing for his song. Mm-hmm. Same thing with James Brown, you know, it was those two drummers, Clyde Stubblefield and Jabbo Starks, and they were careful not to step on each other, and they played very lightly. Basically, when you see a video, you know, they're not working hard at all. Uh, they're sitting relaxed, and the pattern is there, and they lock into that pattern, but they're not, you know, raising their their arms high in the air right. <laughs> to get that sound or anything. So it's uh, it's really about the attitude, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes it so different.
0: It always you bring that up it always amazed me Clyde and Jabo how they got the snare sound that they did with like you said not raising their hands up in the air. There's another video uh with with um James Gatson playing Kissing My Love uh-huh. and this snap. I mean, it looks like he doesn't even lift the stick off the snare and he gets this crack that's so uh, like, I can't figure out how he, how he does it. It's almost like if it was, if it was today's, if it was recorded in 2020, I would say that it's like triggered or something, you know? Yeah. It's amazing.
1: No, he was letting the microphones do the work, you know, which is smart. When you go into the studio, all the engineer has to do is turn it up a little bit or add some top you don't have to hit that hard. You can stay relaxed and stay comfortable, and get a great feeling, a great groove going, without overplaying.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a learning curve too, learning to let the microphones do the work. Yeah, you know, and be getting it when you get into bigger rooms and things like that. Like my my issue when we when we were going from five hundred to maybe like a thousand or fifteen hundred seat clubs. I, for a year, a year and a half, my hands were killing me because I thought that I was like, oh, bigger room. I have to play louder, you know, so I have to hit harder. And right. I, uh, it was bad. It was bad for a long time until someone was like, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be, pr- just tell the guy that turned the microphones off. <laughs> <laughs> Are your
1: hands okay now? Yeah, they're fine now. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess you live and learn though, you know, yep. I was like, I mean, there was some nights where, you know, my, I was worried I couldn't play the next songs. My hands were completely cramped up and oh. it was just oh. really bad technique and, and really foolish on my part.
1: <laughs> oh, it's bad. Bad.
0: Oh, well. Uh, so I have an, uh, a, an odd question for you. It may be hard to answer, but if someone said, Hey, look, um, you only get to leave one recording of yourself behind which which one would it be? Would it be a record or a particular song that you would say that's most representative of you of you as a drummer?
1: Oh uh, boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Well, there's a bunch of them that I'm proud of uh, and don't mind hearing again. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of them. A lot of them that I hear and and squirm. Oh man! I wish I'd had one more take on that one. <laughs> Uh, that's hard. Uh, I love what I did uh, for Donald Fagan on Kamakuri Ad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm on four tracks on that record, and and each one um, it's a great record. I feel good about. Uh, the one called On the Dunes and the one called Trans Island Skyway. Uh, I'm happy with the way it turned out and the mm-hmm. feels and stuff. So maybe that album and and the second Brecker Brothers album called Back to Back has got a couple of things on there where the the band was really happening and it was fresh music. There's a tune called Slicks, some slick stuff. Um, that's got some drum things on it, and another one called uh, If You Want a Boogie, Forget It, which has Will singing, you know. But mm-hmm. those were feels that I came up with that. Um, that when I listen to it now, I say not bad.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're better than not bad. That's just my <laughs> that's my opinion. Uh, so who who are some artists that you've always wanted to work with that you haven't had a chance to work with yet, or that you know are are no longer around that you would have liked to work with?
1: Well, I did a kind of a clinic with Michael Jackson mm-hmm. or a uh, Yamaha electronic drums at one point and I met him and we spent the day together. That's pretty and awesome. It, it was. It was really awesome. And um when we when we left he said, you know, we'll see each other again and uh, hopefully we'll get to work together and stuff but you know, his career really took off and all the records that he did after that, you know, are are classics. Mhm. And so many great drummers from Ndugo, Ndugu to John Robinson to uh, Jeff Beccaro. Um, so much great playing and and working with Quincy. So, I would have liked to work with with him again. That would have been fun. Uh, Bob Dylan, I worked with for three and a half, almost four years. You know, but we never actually did any recording. And I would love to go into the studio with him. Yeah. And do something.
0: You just toured uh, with him?
1: Just toured. Yeah. yeah, we did. You know, it was basically a nonstop tour for uh, three and a half, almost four years. Wow. And uh, some great stuff. I know a lot of, I think you can find almost any concert that we did on on bootleg, uh, but nothing, you know, official, no official recording with them. So All I would right. have liked to have. What year have
0: range to, was that? I'd like to listen to this, some of them.
1: This is 1988 to 1992.
2: Cool.
0: Who else were you saying? Uh,
1: besides Bob? Um, I did stuff with, with Rick Danko and Richard Manuel around Woodstock, and they both passed away. I never got a chance to do more with them. Tim Harden uh, I worked, worked with, but never got to do recording with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Bonnie Raitt I would love to record with again. I, I think she's a great... Artist, you know, and uh, great singer and great mm-hmm. slide guitar player. That would be fun to work with her again.
0: Yeah, she's pretty. She's pretty badass.
1: She really is yeah. badass. Yeah, and she's always been her her own person. You know, she's going to do it her way and her style. And um, she's she's awesome. She's really awesome. And nobody plays slide guitar like that. You know, she's yeah. underrated as a slide guitarist. As many people as like her, but she's really great on slide and their singing is is there's no
0: comparison you know
1: nobody yeah. gets a more soulful take on a lyric than bonnie Raitt.
0: yeah yeah it's 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 an interesting thing of how some people fly under the radar in terms of uh in terms of getting the recognition they deserve you know yeah but she's yeah. definitely she's definitely in that category
1: yep yeah. same thing with cheryl crow i work with her at a uh, Martin Luther King dedication in Washington D.C., and we we only did a couple of tunes, but she was great to work with. We're really great singer and really musical. Uh, be fun to record with her. James Taylor was at that concert too. I would love to record with him. You know, if I had the opportunity,
2: right? But uh,
0: there's
1: a lot of folks out there, a lot of great artists. Yeah, you know, there
0: are. That is for sure. Yeah uh so if people want to keep in touch with you or follow along with what with what you're doing where's the best place to go is it your website or social media or
1: all of that is good uh i'm on instagram it's crispyarker or uh my website is chrisparkerdrums.com um and i have some art Websites too, artlampoon.com dot com has got a lot of my artwork
0: and I was gonna ask, is that all your artwork behind you? Yeah. It's beautiful. Oh thanks, man. Yeah, there's a lot of it too. Oh yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff
1: in the closet and yeah. under the bed. Yeah, there's tons of stuff.
0: <laughs> if I did artwork, mine would go right in the trash. <laughs> oh. I just I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. I know I just I can't do it. Brother-
1: that may be a plus. You know, <laughs> maybe <you> can, so. I may be a
0: genius. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> let yourself go. True. That's true. Uh so what you so it was uh the art lampoon? Uh just art
1: www.artlampoon.com. Okay. And then that, and that's got a link to the other website I mentioned, Chris Parker Drums. You know, you can either choose art or music on Perfect. that site. Perfect. And that'll take you to uh there's a third site called Chris Parker Artwork dot com that's uh, mostly watercolors from sketchbooks all the the sketchbooks that i take on the road with me and i've always had with me you know it's got a lot of stuff i was looking through them yesterday because it's the last uh stuff that i worked on was going out to hear people live mm-hmm. i always like to do that bring the book and i drew simon phillips with his band i drew matt wilson with his band oh wow uh, so yeah and that's That stuff is not happening in New York right now.
0: It's not happening anywhere. No. What, uh, before I let you go, how much do you think that your artwork serves your music and vice versa?
1: A hundred percent. You know, to me, they've always been connected. As I mentioned, I went to art school and paid for my uh, apartment and food and everything by doing gigs on the weekend. The Mm -hmm. the two the two things have always been connected for me, hand-eye coordination and all the uh, cliched metaphors, you know, stretching a head, stretching a canvas, brushing a, a painting, brushing a drum. Uh, they're very, very intertwined for me. And and when I'm drumming, I think in terms of a, a painting, you know, what's how is this song going to have a, a perspective to it? How is it going to have a a, uh, a texture to it you know mm-hmm. what things what things about this music are going to are going to uh radiate color and and um a vanishing point you know uh, mm-hmm. and same thing when i'm painting i'm thinking how how could i make this painting more like a a song, (laughs) right? You know, a song that's got a beginning, middle and end, and it's got an arc to it so that it tells a, tells a story as you go through, you know, what's in the foreground, what's in the background. The two things are always completely intertwined.
0: Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I, I think it's important to talk about the fact that Although we are drummers and we love drumming, and it's very important to us, we can't just be myopic and just say that our life is just drums 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 you have to you have to at least uh you have to at least experience other things for outside creativity and I think the argument is always you can do that if you don't want to be great, but I think that you uh and many other people are are examples that no you don't just have to play drums 24 hours a day 7 days a week to have a very successful career at drumming and be a great player.
1: I agree. So, I think I think one thing serves the other, you know, the fact that you take in museums and do sports and uh creative writing, all that stuff enters into your drumming and enters into your musicality. You know, you you have a wider you have a deeper pool, a deeper well to to dip into when it comes to expressing yourself on the drums. If you can express yourself in, in other methods and other ways as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat. Uh, I've been, I've been listening to your drumming for years. So it's nice to, to finally, you know, sit down and chat and, and, and pick your brain a little bit. And I know that the, that the audience enjoyed it as well. And I will link up to all of your, your websites to make sure that people can, can find you easily and uh, be safe out there. Again, thank you so much for, for being part of the podcast. And hopefully I'll see you in person soon.
1: I hope so too, Nick. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Likewise. That was the one and only Chris Parker. And you can find the show notes to this episode by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session five, six three and all the links are on there especially if you want to check out his artwork if you want to check out uh his music his discography his his biography of all the people he's played with it's absolutely amazing and uh also if you dug this episode please share it with your friends let people know that it's out there and i also have a pretty big announcement coming in the next couple days so be sure to uh keep your ear to the keep your ear to the ground as they say uh, other than that that's all i got for you for now so until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening stay safe stay healthy and i'll be talking to you soon peace drummer's resource is produced by revoice media executive producer nick ruffini that's me edited by justin thomas video editing by tomas shannon and graphic design by Katherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.